0: And the people that worship, lead worship at uh, Cactus in the venue, they work so hard during the week and bring their talent. And then they humbly present to us these, this time of worship. And it's, their role is to get our focus off of the junk around us and put it on God. And I so appreciate that. And then we come to this point, And the role of the minister then is to look into God's word and see how, how we need to make the mid-course corrections in our life to align our thinking more with the thinking of Christ. And that's what I wanna do today. I wanna talk about how we think, how we process life by looking at how Jesus expected us to and encouraged us to do that. And to set that up, I wanna go back in time, turn the clock back to October 20th, 1968 in Mexico City. If you were there, it was wrapped up in the uh, World Olympics. On that particular day, they ran the marathon the marathon is one of the oldest events in the Olympics. And on this particular day, the, the men took off. And one of the men was a guy named John Stephen Akori from Tanzania. They were about halfway through this 26-mile race. And in, you know, if you've seen these races or you've ever been in, you ran track many times, you're running in close configuration to each other, the arms and legs flying. And in the process, he tripped, he fell, and he blew out his knee, he dislocated his hip, and he whacked his head very hard. Well, at that point, he's down, he's down for the count. They all took off past him, he's so injured, there's just no way that he could possibly have any kind of photo finish here, or have any chance for a medal. And most people would, at that point, be, say, I'm done. But he got up and he kept going and kept going and kept going. Many times he had to stop and walk, but he was in incredible pain. Well, The runners finished. They gave out the medals. The stadium was actually emptying. It was well over an hour after the thing was over when they put on the PA system, please stay in your seats. There's a marathoner still making his way. He's almost to the stadium. And the the, the 5,000 that were left there were amazed to see John Stephen Acquari tripping and falling his way into the stadium. And he came around that last lap to the applause of these people. They, overwhelmed with... Overwhelmed with uh, excitement, they, they applauded him, and then they, the f- medical people took him off to the hospital. Well, he got to the hospital, the press wanted to meet him there, and they ad- wanted to ask him the only question any of us would want to ask a person in that situation, and that is, why? After falling and injuring yourself so badly, why would you continue get up uh, uh, under all that enormous stress on your body when there was no chance of you having any world-class finish or getting a medal? And here's what he said: My country didn't send me seven thousand, excuse me, didn't send me five thousand miles to start a race. They sent me five thousand miles to finish one. John Stephen Aquilary is an inspiring person. In fact, when anybody brings up the 1968 Olympics and the marathoners among runners, nobody remembers who got the gold medal. Everybody remembers who came in last because of the kind of person he was there's a huge difference between people who do great things and people who live great lives and because of that i want to i want to look at the word of god and and see how 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 that plays out in our own lives because you got to understand that like it or not we fall into categories and nobody loves to categorize people and put them in boxes more than preachers do we just love to categorize people and we do it all the time, but we get it from the world. I mean, we, the world categorizes the haves and the have-nots. They have the problem makers, the problem solvers. I think there's an even big category of some of you fall into. There's, there's morning people and night people. And isn't it interesting, in God's incredible wit, that he loves to have morning people fall in love with night people and get married. <laughs> I'm a night owl. I can't stand to go to bed at night. Darcy, I married, I married this... This 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 morning person, and so we're early in our marriage. It's like 9:30. Uh, she's getting ready to go to bed. I think I'm going to go back, and go to bed. Why? Look, there's still junk on television. There's still traffic outside. Well, because morning comes early, she said. She she's actually said to me, "Morning comes early." Now, what kind of a statement is that? Morning comes. Morning comes whenever you set the clock for it to come. But sure enough. She was right, morning would come early, and she's up at 5.30 putting on her stuff to go to the gym, and she's perky and singing. And you're thinking, what is this? It's still dark outside. I found a verse to defend myself. Proverbs 27:14 says, he who blesses his friend with a loud voice early in the morning, it will be reckoned a curse to him. See, so there you are. So there are these categories of people. That, that we fall into, and in the passage I want to look at today shows a great category of people. A people, unfortunately, a category many of us fall into. In this passage here in John chapter six, you're going to see Jesus. Uh, on, on, he's right on the threshold of heading to Jerusalem and climbing up on a cross and paying for our sins, dying oh, this horrible death, to uh, and, and and then ultimately ultimately uh being buried and raising from the dead and setting us free from our sin through salvation but he had to do several things here and and, and there's a lot of ways to look at this passage but the what i want to do is look at what he was doing on behalf of the disciples here obviously he was going to help these people and so forth but he had something in mind because see in a very short time he knows that i'm leaving the scene i'm going to leave these men with very tall orders to go out and take the gospel throughout the world and, and establish the Christian movement. There's not going to be any way. All the odds are going to be stacked against them. And I want them to know that when I ask them to do something like that, a tall order, it doesn't look humanly possible. Just trust me. Just do it because, because I'm going to be with them and I will empower them. So he used this scenario of these 5,000 hungry people to prove his point. Watch this. Let's, let's read together. John chapter 6. And it says verse 1 sometime after this Jesus crossed to the far shore to the sea of, of uh, the far shore of the sea of Galilee that is the sea of Tiberias and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick then Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down with his disciples the Jewish Passover feast was near now verse 5 When Jesus looked up and saw the great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we we buy bread for these people to eat? Now he asked this only to test him For he already had in mind what he was going to do. Now let's make sure we understand what Jesus is not doing here. He's not trying to make Philip look foolish. That's not at all. He knows that in short time I'm leaving and I'm going to give these guys big orders. They're not going to know how to do that from a human point of view. I want to to put a huge dilemma in front of them and then show them how to uh, pull this off with my power. So he is, he's basically giving them a lecture on his power, then he's gonna put them in a laboratory experience to see if they got it, like a good teacher does, and then test them on it, okay? Watch this. So Philip goes human on it, just like you and I would, and said, are you kidding me? Eight months wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Very logical, practical response. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Andrew, by the way, is always introducing someone to Jesus. When you meet him in the Bible, he always, he he's always bringing somebody over. You've got to meet Jesus. So he be, brings this kid over. He says, here's this boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? So somehow, Andrew has located this kid who has weaseled his way to the front of the crowd to get near Jesus, and this boy's mother had the forethought to send him off to see Jesus with a Happy Meal, and Andrew actually saw inside the bag, and apparently, uh, I mean, he knew that what he had, he knew how many he had, and he knew the portions, the sizes of them. Why? Maybe he thought he smelled the food, and he was getting hungry. He thought maybe the kid would share. Uh, Maybe he has more than he needs, or I'm bigger than he is. I can take it. I don't know what was going on there, but he brought him to Jesus, and so look what Jesus did. Verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. There's no throwaway lines in the Bible. Why would they mention that? I think God's wanting to say, look, I want people to be comfortable when I'm ministering to them. So he had put grass out there. They sat down. The man sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed. Look at this. uh, Distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He didn't determine in advance what was there. He said, No, take as much as you want. You got a big appetite, take more. You got a long trip home, stuff some in your pocket. Take as much as you want. He did the same with the fish. Verse 12: When they had all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. Notice the balance there between generosity on one side and good stewardship and, 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 and thriftiness on the other side. He has them in balance. Don't let it be wasted. So it, it, so they, they gathered up the pieces that were left over and, uh, and they filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. So, so among other things he's teaching them, look, I, when I call you to do something that's huge and you don't know how to do it, just follow my lead, trust me in that. And by the way, I know you have to eat too. I know you have a family too. I'm also going to take care of you in the process because they each had a basket left for themselves. After the people saw the miraculous signs that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus said, Stop calling me surely. That's a woman. Actually, that's not in there, but it should be. (laughs) And then Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him a king by force, he withdrew to the mountain by himself. Now, Now what you can do is you can take all the gospels, you can put them together in harmony and get the bigger picture of what happens next. He's lectured them on the power of God. He's shown them and demonstrated for them what he can do when he asks them to do something with his power. So now it's time for a laboratory experience. Let's see if you got the lesson I just taught them. So he sent them across the lake. In fact, in in Mark chapter 6, verse 45, it says, Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. So he must be quite an administrator that one man can dismiss 5,000 people while he sent the other 12 across the lake. So he sends them across the lake, and then he goes up in in the mountain to pray for them. And I think what he was praying for is how, how well they do on their, on their exam that he's going to give them, because he, he called a, t- uh, a tsunami down on top of them. So they're crossing the lake, says, okay, Lord, bring, Father, bring a tsunami down on them. So boom, here comes this ferocious storm, and it hits them with all of its power, and the waves are overwhelming them, and they're so frightened, what they're out there in the middle of the lake, and they collectively come to the conclusion that they are going to die, Okay, now as soon as they came to that collective conclusion, what did they get on their pop quiz? What what grade did they get? They get an F. They just flunked the quiz. Because it was impossible for them to drown because where did he say he'd meet them? On the other side. They couldn't have drowned even if the boat sunk. Because he said he'd meet them on the other side. Well, now he has to go meet them on the other side. It's a long walk up along the top of the So he just cuts across the lake. So he's running across the lake to catch up to meet them there. And, talk. and he runs by the boat. And he's walking on the water. And they see him in the middle of the storm. A man walking. It scares him to death. And finally, they invited him in the boat. And if you read on in your scriptures, as soon as he got in the boat, it says, immediately, they were at the other side. Right where he said he'd meet them. You see, God calls on us to do things. And we have an option to think human or think redeemed. To fall to our weak nature or to envision this through the power of God. And so because of that, I wanna contrast two types of thinkers because we we, we fall into these categories. And on these categories, these are continuums of which people who have put their faith in Christ can fall on one side or the other. I can fall on one side or the other. But, I, and I'm going to put these things, I'm gonna take one and I'm gonna put it over in kind of its extreme, almost toxic form, and the other one over on its, on its very stylized, idealistic form, and then I'm, I'm gonna, then my, your job and my job is to see where do we fall in between on these things. And, 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 and for venue and cactus, just know that when, when you are facing life, When you are facing life and and it's coming at you bad, you got to know how to respond properly. Let's learn together in in all of our congregations. Look at this. How do they view life? How do these two types of thinkers view life? Scarcity thinkers are on one side, abundant thinkers on the other. How do scarcity thinkers view life? They start off with a presupposition that life is a finite pie. That's where they go wrong. They start off with this assumption, life's a finite pie, that everything is fixed and limited. Resources are limited. Ideas are limited. Opportunities are limited. Even love is limited. Now, you can see how debilitating this would be to relationships, how how undermining it would be to a marriage or to children. Or grandchildren and obviously you could see how these people would really hold a church hostage if somebody like this ever got on the elder board of a church or in a high position in the executive level of a staff of a church it would just wreak havoc on the work of the gospel and that doesn't mean even if you have the kind of personality tend to be more quantifying and, and and that doesn't mean Jesus had all all the all the four quadrants of personality. he was strong he was high in all four of them but he never got them out of balance. We never want our, the strength of our personality to hold hostage the work of faith because once it does, that strength has now become a weakness. So, I could fall on this side very easily. I've struggled in my life easily falling on this side of scarcity thinking. What about abundant thinkers? Abundant thinkers believe there's plenty for everyone. They start off with a presupposition, there's plenty for everyone. That's because they're looking through a lens that has been completely re- redefined by the work of Christ on the cross. They don't limit God's work of grace and sal- to salvation. Obviously, it is a work of salvation, but they let that grace now wash over them and completely retrofit their thinking to how they relate to everybody else. And so when it comes to how they view life, there's plenty for everyone. Ideas, they believe, are unlimited. Opportunities are unlimited. Even resources are unlimited. We had a man in our church for many years, a wonderful songwriter named John W. Peterson. Many of you knew him. He was a great songwriter of the 20th century. And so he, I felt he was qualified to ask a question that's always, I've always wondered about. And I asked him, I said, John, look, there's eight notes in a musical scale plus their sharps and flats. Now, we've been writing, man has been writing original music for what? 5,000 years? And those classical artists, they are very greedy. They use a lot of those notes in combination. Shouldn't we be getting towards the end of our melodic options for those eight notes plus their sharps and flats? He said, Tim, the melodic and mathematical options of those eight notes plus their sharps and flats... Are infinite he said we could write original music for another billion years and we haven't even scratched the surface of those eight notes God has never dropped two snowflakes out of the out of, out of the sky with the same crystallized form he has never fingerprinted two people alike he's never striped two zebras alike he paints an original sunset every evening you could take a picture of it. You'll never find one that matches the other. They are all unique and one of a kind. He does, and by the way, out here, because of the air pollution, and they get refracted, they're just brilliant out here. And so, in the valley. Now, how many primary colors does he have to choose from to, to do an original sunset every day? How many primary colors are there? Three. Out of those three colors, he has never repeated himself once. Why would we ever let our mindset be so confined to limit the power of God and what he wants to do in us, on us, with us, for us, and through us? But if we start with that myopic mindset that life is a finite pie, down we go. Here's a verse that I love. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 20 and 21. It says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's one you need to keep close to heart. That's a verse you need to get written down and put somewhere where you repeat it a lot to yourself to it's second nature to you. Okay, we've looked at how they view life. How do they view what they have? How do these two types of thinkers view what they have? Well, scarcity thinkers have a difficult time sharing. Obviously. It'd be hard to share if I think the whole thing is fixed from the beginning. It'd be hard for me to share with somebody else because if I share with them, that means there's less for me. And so they they have a hard time sharing. What they do is they hoard. They hoard. We hoard when we're this way. What do we hoard as scarcity thinkers? We hoard recognition. Don't want to give recognition to somebody because less th- th- that recognition undermines what I feel I need for myself. We might uh, 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 hoard giving credit to somebody else. lest it, 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 it downplays the, ro- the, the contribution you made. Or, or ideas, we're afraid to give an idea to somebody lest they take it and parlay it into something really extraordinary that they take to a level we couldn't even have thought of. We hoard our time, we hoard opportunities. And then, often, in relationships, we hoard power. They hoard power in the marriage, power in the, in, in the family. And then in the marketplace, you can really see this when they hoard profit. They don't want to share it with the people that helped them get it. Now, let me meddle a little bit. Let's meddle a little bit, because if we don't do this respectfully, but honestly... We're not we're not doing church. We're not we're not doing the word of God. You know, you know where this shows up many times in in, in, in our our um, attitudes? It, 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 we can become very cynical when we let scarcity thinking own us. Let me define a cynic. A cynic is a person who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. And it's an easy trap to fall into when we're looking at ourselves instead of watching God and taking our cues from him. And then this really plays out many times when it comes to how we do church and how we respond to the, to, to Bible studies. I've been around, I have gray hair now, I've been around this, this whole evangelical movement a long time. And, 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 I have noticed that there on 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 the scarcity mindset side of, of christians there there are many times professional critics of god's servants they they I, I call them serial Bible study attenders. They go to Bible studies like mad. They have a Bible that's covered with colors and so forth. but you know that they're they're, they're to be Hearers of the word, but not necessarily interested in being doers of the word because they're usually the first ones to you As soon as you get done to tell you where you you, you had it all wrong to correct your theology to, 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 to put you in your place or they're the ones that want to grade you I, we, we, we often have this uh, where where well on a scale of one to ten. I'd give you a four You see now if we're approaching church or a Bible study with how well did they perform you understand how? how toxic that mindset is. You understand what an insult that is to the work of Christ on the cross. It is, it is insulting to the gospel to think that we would approach anything like how well did they wow me? Now, because I've been around a while, those people don't bother me. They come to me and they, they, they say the stuff and I, I, you know, I just, I don't take it first. I just ignore them. But I feel sorry for the young guns. I feel sorry for those young men and women who have worked hard and prepare their, their Bible study or, or whatever it is. And then but but their 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 gifts are still being developed. They they don't have the savvy of that, that time gives them. And so so people are quick to put them in their place or or they go off to the coffee shop afterwards and grade them. And, and I just want to say, if you're you, you know we should approach anytime time we go to a Bible study or any time we come to church. We should approach it as, "I need a bath. I need a bath. Lord, cleanse me, cleanse my heart, O God. Find those parts where where, where, where there's dirt and fill it, with, clean it out. I want to be clean." The the scarcity people here they approach this more like a spiritual hot tub. And they just want to bask in it. And how's the temperature? And if the temperature isn't just right, they want to complain about it. Now, I realize I have just been meddling way too much here. <laughs> but we should be a church of grace. We should be a church that represents the work of real blood that went off of a cross to set us free from this kind of thinking. If you struggle with that, here's my practical suggestion. If you go home, get on your knees, and beg God for forgiveness. And say, Lord, cleanse my heart. And give me the kind of heart and the kind of eyes that see these things the way you would see them. And we, and we respond to these things. Lord, grow me in these things. Because we do have some wonderful people coming up through the ranks, and our job is to encourage them and to help them and, 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 and to wish their best. That doesn't mean there isn't a place for legitimate correction and critique. Well, I'm, you know, I have to be open to that to the day I die, and we are. But we have to help on that. As an elder of this church for many years, and watch what some of our people have to, the abuse they have to take, I have to speak out on this. We're better than this. Christ said it's free to be better than this. All right. Well, I've just ticked everybody off. Let's go to abundant thinkers. <laughs> how, how about abundant thinkers? How do they do? What? How do they do? Uh, view what they have. They hold all that they have in an open palm. That doesn't mean that they're irresponsible stewards of what they have. They're not reckless about it. But but they, they hold it in an open palm. They're, they're, they they want to use what they can to enhance everybody else in the bigger picture they they don't hoard they share they share resources and recognition of other people they share their time they share their ideas they share opportunities they share power and they share profit our church has had a wonderful history in this regard when it comes to church planners in the area we're notorious for introducing them, and, and, and Daryl and Jamie and, all, and push people towards them. I remember Daryl had, had a guy planning a church, and he had him introduce him, introduce his wife. They told him about their heart for ministry, and he said, now listen, God's tugging at some of y'all's hearts right now. You need to go and join up with this guy. Now listen, what, what, what's the address of the church? And He said, now write, I remember him saying, write this in your Bible. Don't write it in the bulletin. You'll lose the bulletin. Write it in your Bible. And what time's church start next Sunday? Now listen, if God's talking at your heart, I want you to go and join up with this this couple. They need you. And every time he'd do that, 25 families would up and leave our church. And 50 would come in to take their place. Because he held what he had. We hold what we have in an open way. That's why it's it's come, grow, and go. And now the active verse, win, build, and send. It's a it's a it's an abundant mindset. No one showed this better than Jim Elliot. And he was a missionary back in 1956, he was slain by uh, by the Alca Indians. He was taking the gospel along with five other missionaries down to to Ecuador to the Alca Indians and they and they they killed them. But but their wives came in and established the church and ultimately brought the gospel to him. But he went willingly, putting his life on the line. And they found in his diary afterwards this 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 statement that has been quoted ever since. He says, "He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, in order to gain what he cannot lose." Grace-filled people that have been completely redefined by the work of the cross. That's how they have an abundant mindset. And that's how they view what they have. How about how they view others? Well, scarcity thinkers have a difficult time being genuinely happy for the successes of other people, even and especially members of their own family, close friends, or associates. They treat other people's blessing as though something were taken from them. And obviously, if I think everything's limited, then obviously if something better happens to you, then there's less for me, and so forth. And by the way, anytime you have a lot of siblings in a family, there's always going to be some cu- one one couple that does much much better than the other. Fine. So what? It should never be a big a, a deal at all. But but if we're scarcity mindset, and we're looking at ourselves. Sure enough, we'd have this problem. Let me give you an example. Let's say, here's a family, and they're they're they're, they're let, let's put them in kind of the lower middle class, meaning they pay their bills on time. And they don't miss a meal. But other than that, there's no extra financial margin. And the guy comes out. And he's a scarcity thinker. And his neighbor pulls up in a brand new Jaguar. Brand new Jaguar. And he says to his neighbor, wow, you must have got a big raise or something. No, no, I didn't get a raise. I can't afford a car like this. I could never buy a car like this. But listen, my grandmother, she's got a lot of money, and she's getting old, and she doesn't want to leave it to all the government. So she just decided to give all his grandkids a car. She asked me what car I've always loved. I've always loved a Jaguar. She bought me a Jaguar. And on top of that, she paid the taxes on it, and she's going to pay the, 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 all the repairs in, 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 in the, on it up until 60,000 miles. So up until 60,000 miles, I get a Jaguar. The scarcity thinker seeing what's wrong with my grandmother? <laughs> Why didn't she do that for me? And the, friend, the neighbor said, you want to come over and see my car? No, no, I'm busy. Oh, come on over. No, 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 I've got some, I've got to color coordinate my sock drawer. I've, I've got some priorities here. He goes into his house. He says, well, you won't believe it. His, his grandmother bought him a brand new Jaguar. This beautiful car, and she paid the taxes, and he's paying the repairs on it. And, you know, and then they pass each other, going to come from work. And the neighbor says, hey, how you doing? And the guy says, ooh, I hate that car. By the way, there's a thin line between hating the car and hating the driver. He comes home, he sees his neighbor looking at the side, of what happened? Somebody nicked my door here. Yes! <laughs> Starting to look more like my piece of junk every day. By the way, is this pathetic? And yet, this is the kind of stuff we can be... Guilty of when we don't let the gospel not only save us but redefine us. That's what happens. We swallow that cultural poison pill of comparison, and we're always measuring ourselves either with inferiority towards people we think are less than us, or uh, I mean, inferiority towards people above us, or superiority over those we think are less than us. And what's sad is that the scarcity thinkers miss out on the shared blessing because they refuse to share joy. They feel like if they can't be blessed, they don't want anyone else to be blessed. And in the process, we sully the gospel. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15 says this, See to it that no one misses the grace of God, and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Well, how about abundant thinkers? How do they view others? They love it when good things happen to the people they love. In fact, they love it when good things happen to anybody. They can't seem to applaud other people's accomplishments and blessings enough. And in the process, they get to the partake of that person's joy. Let's go back to the same situation. Okay, an abundant thinker comes out. Neighbor's got a new Jaguar. Wow, well, you got a raise? No, no, no. My grandmother. She's giving away. She got. She gave us each a car, and she's paying the taxes and all and, and the repairs on it. You're kidding me? Your grandmother did that? That is incredible. What a beautiful car. He says. He, he said, you want to? You want to see it? Yeah, he said, but let me get my camera. I got to take a picture. I'm gonna put this up on Facebook. My neighbor got a new Jaguar. I got to get my wife. She comes out. He says, you want to drive it? You'll let me drive it oh, And they're driving around the Jaguar, and they pass each other. They going to coming from work, and the neighbor says, "Hi!" Says, I love your car. Great car. He comes home. He sees them. Look at what happened. Somebody nicked my car. Oh no! Wait a minute. I've got, wait a minute. I've got some compound here. I'll in my garage. I'll come over. Well, we can let's let's work on it. I think we can we can polish that out. We can grind it out. What's the difference here? It's like the neighbor's grandmother gave the abundant thinker the car. He's so excited for the good thing that happened to somebody else that all the benefits of that just get to wash over him too. That's what God has called us. He went to the cross to set us free from the tyranny of our selfishness. And he wants that to change the way we think. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 through 5. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each to the interests of others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Let's look at the last viewpoint on these two types of thinkers. How do they view adversity? How do they view adversity? Cactus, venue? Let's all take notes on this one. How do we view adversity? Scarcity thinkers take adversity personally. They take it personally. And they punish the people up close to them when they have to go through it. How do they do that? They whine. They complain. They nag. Someone has said nagging is like being nibbled to death by a duck. You say, Will you just grow teeth and finish me off? I am sick of this stuff. You're driving me crazy. Scarcity thinkers make an idol out of their misery and they worship their self pity. And probably the worst problem when we fall into this trap, when, when, when you or I allow scarcity mindset to react in, in our, our time of adversity, is oftentimes we don't dream, and we don't give the people up close to us permission to dream. Do you understand how debilitating and damaging this would be to a marriage, to our children and grandchildren, and to the work of God? Well, how about abundant thinkers? Well, they feel the pain and the frustration of adversity, but they never use that as an excuse for not doing everything they can to move beyond it. I mean, they have nerve endings, they have emotions, they, they understand disappointment and crises and hurt and pain, but, but they're processing it through the work, the finished work, and I love to put that word in it, the finished work of Christ on the cross. See, when we let his work on the cross, when we limit it to salvation, we have limited it and let, rather than let it finish us. And so we might be back on this performance basis and all this other stuff that we do that undermines our ability to let Christ wash over us and control the way we think. So they, they feel that pain, but they never use it as an excuse. They fall forward. This is a football term. You men will love this. If you played football. Uh, in high school, we had a great football coach. And he, at the beginning of each season, he would, he would, he would give us his little lecture. And, and he said, no, look, this game is not that complicated. Here's how we do it. The object of this game is we hand you the ball and you fall forward. That's the game we're playing. Now, the key word here, man, is fall. They're going to get you. They're gonna hit you hard. They're gonna rip your head off. Just make sure you're several, a couple yards further down the field when they do that to you than where we handed you the ball. And eventually, you fall, somebody falls across the end zone and we get some numbers up on the sign. That's how we win, that's how we play this game. He says, You're gonna get hurt. And, and, and so that's the other thing about abundant thinkers when it comes to adversity they play hurt, they keep playing even though they're hurt. Uh, back to football, uh, 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 every once in a while, you, you, you get really winded. Somebody nail you really good, and you, you're, you're getting up slower. You're not getting up. And I remember he would call out, and I'd call it, he'd call out to me, Kimmel, are you hurt or are you injured? And I hated that question because I was just hurt. Because if you're injured, you got to get off the field. You're not going to function, but, but I was just hurt. And I'd say, Coach, I'm hurt. And what would he say? Get up. Get up. Everybody's hurt out there. It's a contact sport. You got to play hurt. And you know it's a lot easier to play hurt when you play for the coach and not for the crowd. When we're living our life for Jesus and not for ourselves or the people around us. Nothing illustrates this as much as the story of Joseph. Here he's this, this guy. He has this, this, this goofed up father who picks him out as this special kid, his favorite. And he gives him that stupid Michael Jackson outfit with a sequin glove. And it makes his brothers jealous. And, the, and then God gives him dreams. that even ramps up the jealousy. And then the, 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 the brothers are out taking care of their sheep. And they see him a long distance off. And they see him coming across. The, how do they know it was him? And he's coming across <laughs> like this. And... And they said, There's that dreamer. There's that dreamer. I hate him. And somebody said, Let's kill him. And they said, We can't kill him. He's our brother. Let's sell him. And so they sold him <laughs> to these, these traders going to Egypt. And he gets bought by this guy named Potiphar, who has this, this lonely, unfulfilled wife. And she comes on to him strong, and he spurns her. And then she keeps coming. And because he refuses her, she falsely accuses him of sexual harassment. He gets thrown into prison. Now, I don't know about you, but if I were were Joseph, I'd be inclined to weigh in with my last prayer to God. I'd pray something like this. Thanks a lot, (laughs) thanks a whole lot. Look, I didn't ask for my goofed up father and that stupid outfit and those dreams. You gave me those dreams and my jealous brothers. I, I didn't ask to be sold into slavery. I didn't ask for this guy's lonely wife. I did everything the way you to- I thought you wanted me to do. And as a result of it, I get thrown in prison. Thanks a lot. But he was an abundant thinker. And Joseph's prayer in the prison went something like this. Okay, Lord, let me see if I get this right. You're moving my ministry from Potiphar's house to the jail. <laughs> okay. And he became the most responsible, reliable prisoner they had. They just about made him the warden. And then he ultimately became the prime minister of Egypt where he could save his family from starvation and idolatry and when he finally confronted his brothers and they were scared for revenge he says no 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 what you did you meant for evil but God meant it for good even in the midst of that adversity and that and and, them backstabbing him he could see through what God was doing and he trusted God in that The point is, we don't want to let any of these things define us. But maybe you've been bankrupt, you've been fired, you've been divorced, you had to get married. Maybe you, you, you had an abortion, you did some things, you used to say, oh, if I could turn back the clock, I think these things could change. And then what the forces of you want to do is let these things define us and hold us down, and God says, no, 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 I, my, my son went to the cross that. Jesus said, i laid it all on the line to set you free from being defined by these things. Let me restore those years that have eaten. Let me give you new life. Let me give you abundant life. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We can shift from being scarcity thinkers to abundant thinkers when we let God's work on the cross be the logical extension of how we view life, how we view others, how we view what we have and how we view adversity. Our church is very committed to having a congregation. Our pastor is very committed to having a congregation that reflects the gracious heart of God. We want people that Scott the Bible to be people who are guided by God's truth and tempered by his grace. And the most place we want this to show up is at home. Because we believe when we can take Jesus home and reflect him under the pressure Pressures and crucible of, of, of home to our children and our grandchildren, then we can ensure the gospel being transferred well to the next generation. Because of that, we're going to be having a special event here on November 8th and 9th. It's going to be the Grace-Based Parenting Conference. It's going to be here. It's just Friday night till Saturday, 1230. It's just, just the morning of Saturday. It goes very fast, and, and Ken Kaz will be there, a great comedian. He's your, he's your MC, and myself and my son Cody are going to be Uh, teaching you and and, and opening up how God's grace looks at home. Would you like grace to be the DNA of your family? Would you like grace to be the atmosphere of the relationships? Would you like to be able to see how grace can set you free when it's time to stand on your kid's air hose and discipline or correct him? Would you like to see how grace really brings the best out of strong-willed kids? That and all kinds of more things. We're going to do that for you in this thing. It's a very uh, low price, affordable thing. If you want to be part of that, we'd love for you to come. You will have a blast, and your stock value will spike. As a parent, a grandparent, even if you're a new parent or you've been a veteran for a while, you've even launched your kids. You're going to love it. There's going to be a table right outside that you can sign up for that. And, And now I've got to land a plane, but... I want to mention to you, some of you might have a heavy heart right now because, boy, I, I found myself falling too much on that scarcity side. When this con- when this uh, thing is over here in a, f- in a minute or so, there's going to be people up here standing here to pray with anybody that needs prayer. Don't hesitate to come up and say, will you pray with me and for me? And they'd be glad to. I, I close with this story. Uh, the story goes that there were these two boys that had attitude. One had a great attitude, one had a bad attitude. One was always down the mouth. He was always pessimistic. They wondered why he was the way he was, so they, they decided an experiment. They put the pessimistic kid in a room that had things that most kids would enjoy. There was a jumping horse, there was a puzzle, there was some candy. He sat down there. They said, we'll come back and check on you in a while. They took the optimistic kid down the hallway, opened up a door, and shoved him in a room that was waist deep in horse manure, <laughs> and he said, we'll check on you in a while. They waited. They waited. They came back. The pessimistic kid was sitting right where they left him, hadn't touched a thing. What's wrong with you? Why didn't you play in a jumping horse? I thought I'd fall off and break my arm. But the puzzle, why didn't you play? They look too complicated. Every kid loves candy. Why didn't you eat the candy? I thought I'd get sick and hurl all over myself. They left him. They came down, they opened up the door, and on the optimistic kid, there's manure all over the walls, all over the ceiling, all over the kid. He's throwing a big chunk of it. What are you doing? With all this manure in here, There's got to be a pony in here somewhere, and I'm going to find him. In John 10.10, Jesus said, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. God bless you, folks.